You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode 60. So thanks to everybody who have, who's been listening to the podcast and whether you're a new listener or you've been listening to the, since the beginning for about a year, we're grateful that you've been able to share this journey with us and learn about investing and asset allocation through the stories of all of these millionaires and, and some of the guests that we've interviewed. If you enjoy the show, leave a review on iTunes. Yanis Nugin did a few days ago and, and his review says, this is a phenomenal podcast. The host asks great questions and the talks are informative. I always look forward to new interviews, hoping to be a guest myself one day. If you'd like to be on the show and share your allocation and your story, if you're a millionaire or close to a million, shoot us an email. Our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. We'd love to have you on the show. Today's episode is with a special guest. That's Michael Blank. Michael is a big multifamily real estate investor and has a recent book called Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing. With Michael, we discuss the advantages of multifamily investing and why he believes multifamily is better than single-family investing in real estate. We also discuss his journey to investing, including a couple failures along the way. He discusses how he was able to bounce back and build up his real estate portfolio today. Last week's episode, if you didn't get a chance to listen, that was Jamie Masters, episode 59, and she's the host of the podcast titled Eventual Millionaire. She talks about how to allocate money between business and other investments, the role of coaches and masterminds, and finding success in the journey that oftentimes we don't celebrate the small things, and that kind of helps us stay strong and, and keep moving along the way. Jamie also shares numerous free resources, which you can find in the show notes for her episode. Again, that's episode 59. Next week's episode, episode 61, will be Joe. That's a millionaire interview, and he is an HR professional with a net worth of $1.75 million. He's married with one kid, and his wife works in HR. His allocation is about 80% stocks and 20% bonds. He also discusses how he's been able to grow his net worth, the mistakes he's made along the way, and the advice he now gives. So without further ado, let's get into this week's episode with Michael Blank. Today on the show, we've got a special guest. We have Michael Blank, who's an entrepreneur, investor, and the CEO of Nighthawk Equity. Michael, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and tell our listeners kind of what you're doing now and kind of where you've come from? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having your show, by the way. Um, so my background is is pretty, uh, pretty, you know, unextraordinary. I was taught to go to school, get good grades, get a job, which I did. I got into computer science, and when I got out of school, I was a programmer. Uh, you know, got got involved in a startup. Wanted to experience the startup atmosphere, and it wasn't the right place, for the right time. The company uh, was called Web Methods, and we went public in March of 2000. Put a bunch of money in my pocket, and of course, I thought I was a genius. And then I read Rich Dad Poor Dad in 2004, and I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm such an idiot. You know, it's not how much money you have in a bank or or whatever. It's how much passive income you had, which at that point I had very little. And so I completely threw it all away. I was like, man, I am just, I had it all wrong. I'm going to start over. And so I just, I quit my job and uh, literally pursued this financial freedom thing. And I did a bunch of stuff. You know, I, I flipped some houses. I learned to trade stocks and options. I took an apartment building class. And, but my big idea was restaurants. And the reason for that was because I was surrounded by a bunch of burger franchisees at the time. And they were saying, oh, we're crushing, we're printing money out the back door. 
We're hiring a guy. They're going to run everything. And we're just going to sit back and count the passive income. I was like, sweet. So that was really my big idea. And so I went all in onto the restaurant stuff. Long story short, I subsequently lost my IPO millions in that, in that experiment, uh, added a few hundred thousand dollars in debt on top of that, and then clawed my way out through real estate. And like many people do with single family houses, and I was flipping, we flipped three dozen houses in, in three years. I got into an apartment building and I was making good money on, on that, but I was, it was a lot of work, even though, you know, I set up my systems and I was buying houses without seeing them, but it was still a very active thing. And that's not really what I was looking for. And meanwhile, this apartment building was sending me, you know, mailbox money. And I was like, man, I should stop doing that and more of this. And, and then around that time, uh, because I didn't have any more money, I had to raise it. And so people were asking me how I raised this thing, how I put these deals together. I started blogging about it. And then just kind of, uh, it just kind of evolved from there. So you know, today we have one of the largest multifamily training platforms. We have a b- bunch of free content. We have paid courses and coaching. And we have this, this unique deal desk program where we partner with people who bring us deals and we raise the money for them. So there, there's a story in a nutshell. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. So essentially you've, you've made it in an IPO and, and in working in a W-2 job and with some options and everything, lost it all in a pizza franchise and then made it all again in real estate. That's it. Awesome. My guess is if you had to go over and do it again, you just start in real estate. Is that correct? Oh my gosh! I mean, I got started with the uh, you know with the with the pizza stuff in 2006, which was right right before the recession, and that was not the greatest time to get into real estate. Uh, but it was still would have been it would have been phenomenal had that just got into multifamily specifically right from the start. It would have been amazing, but it wasn't meant to be. And so obviously, I had to go through this this experience first. <laughs> yeah. So you you've got a, a new book, Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing, and one of the points in there is why multifamily investing is better than single family. Do you want to just give us a little background into why that is and why you found multifamily to be the best option in real estate? Single family house investing is darn good. It's fabulous. It's it's better than 98% of the population who invests in other things like stocks and bonds and things of that nature. So uh, multifamily though has, in my mind, since I've done both, a lot of advantages. Number one, it's a lot more passive. What I mean by that is you have a professional manager that's already built into the business model. In other words, it's an unnatural act to have so, someone have an apartment building and not having a proper manager. Versus on a single family house, my observation is that people tend to self-manage until they get to a certain size. Number two, I can get unlimited loans on multifamily that I don't have to personally guarantee, and that was always a challenge as well. Relatively easy to, to, to raise money for either single family or multifamily. And really what it boiled down for me is, though, it helped me achieve the goals that I wanted. They were both financial but also lifestyle related. So the passivity or the leverage time aspect was not there. And I could start small and scale it up big with multifamily, where obviously with single family houses, it's just one at a time. And it, and it, it became very difficult to achieve my goals. And a lot of people who start with single family houses sometimes uh, go over to multifamily because it helps them scale faster. So those are some of the reasons that I really gravitated towards the multifamily side of things. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And, and some of the people that we've interviewed, a lot of the times, you know, they follow that. They follow, they start in single family. And, you know, either they have one or two homes or, or they realize that, hey, I want to go bigger. And that's when they scale up to multifamily. You talked about quitting your job. That I mean, did that make you nervous? It had to a little bit. You know, I, 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 I was nervous. Uh, and I think the, one of the things that settled me most than anything else is I, I felt like I had a loss of control where I always felt like I could control things. I controlled my career to a large degree. And then when I went on my own, especially when I got in the restaurants and the real estate stuff, 
I mean, stuff happened I couldn't control at all, and that was really disconcerting uh, for me. So that was probably one of, the, one of the biggest lessons. And I find that people, when I interviewed them on my podcast, people who quit their jobs, they tend to, by their own admission, hold on to their jobs longer than they actually need to from a financial perspective. But they, they, they derive such comfort and, to some degree, identity from their job that they delay that, that process quite a bit. So how do they know when to quit if that's their goal and they want to get and start investing in real estate or something else? How did they know? How did you know when when the time was right? Uh, typically, my advice is regardless of what you do is you start doing something on the side until it starts making money to the point where you can cover your living expenses. And then there's a spectrum there, right? So some people are uh, quit their job when they saw a pipeline forming. So they had some income from multifamily and they, they saw a massive pipeline and said, right, I'm just going to focus on this full time. And I'm going to get there faster or in some uh, just waited a long time until they, they, you know, they were really, really sure that the cash flow was, was going to be there. So it really varies. It varies quite a bit as mindset consideration and comfort, comfort level. If somebody's going to get going, they're going to start on the side, like you said, do they start with the syndication or do they try to get, you know, Hey, uh, let me do my first deal. Let me just do it with the, the funds that I've saved and then I'll go do a syndication what I love about this business is that there's like uh, like a half a dozen ways that you can actually get started. So I'll just mention them uh, briefly. One is you can do what you just said. You can you can buy your own deal with your own money. That's number one. Number two is you can be a passive investor. So let's say you have some money, but you don't really have the time or desire to go looking for deals. You and find someone you invest passively with them. Then the third option is you can do uh, in a partnership. So you have you know three, four, whatever, five guys, and everybody puts in some money, and one of them or two of them does all the work. And the next one is a, is a syndication, right? Syndication is where there's one entrepreneur, they find a deal, they raise the money, they put the, the manager in place. Um, and that's kind of the classic style of getting started with, with apartment buildings. But then there's other exciting things. For example, you can become a money raiser for a syndicator. So if you gravitate towards raising money, you have an ability to raise money, you have some money, you know other people with money, you can actually raise money for a syndicator who has the deal. And that's really exciting. Uh, if you have a high net worth, you can actually co-guarantee loans and in return for all who finds a deal. So there's really so many different ways that you can get involved. And, and we've joint ventured in this in this capacity you know, probably over the last 18 months or so. So it's really, really cool way to get a lot of people uh, involved. Yeah, it seems like the, the possibilities really are endless if somebody really wants to get involved in, in real estate, especially on the multifamily side. Let's let's dive a little bit into each one of those. How would somebody go about vetting a syndicator and what are some things, maybe pitfalls to look for, things to look for in that syndicator that they might be investing with? Yeah, so the, the successful money raisers align themselves with a small number of operators, right? They, you don't need a dozen of them, you need maybe one or sometimes two, uh, you're looking for you know regular deal flow so that you have something to put in front of your investors on a maybe quarterly basis or so. And you know the operator is so key, and that operator has to have a track record. They have to have a great team in place. You know, you you have to feel like you can trust them that they're have high integrity, that they communicate well. So these are all the things that, that are really important as a money raiser is trying to align themselves with an operator. Uh, and, and the key there is is a certain amount of education because as a money raiser, while you don't need to get into the weeds about how do you underwrite and analyze a deal, you de- you do need to be able to take a look at numbers and packages. So you have to you have to know about multifamily, maybe not to the degree that someone who's finding in the deal and doing due diligence on it, but still quite a bit so that you appear confident and knowledgeable to your investors. Let's talk about if somebody wants to go into like a partnership, like you said, 
how would they find a, a partner or two? And, and when they do find that partner, I know you've got a chapter in your book uh, about analyzing a deal in 10 minutes. Is that something that some, a skill set that somebody would, would need if they're going into a partnership? Would all the partners kind of need to know how to analyze a deal together? Yeah, certainly the partners need to know. They need to recognize a good deal from from a bad one. The money, both the money raiser and the syndicator, have to have a much more understanding to underwrite write these deals. Yeah, and I think there's so many resources out there, Ed, to learn. You have a great podcast. There's other real estate podcasts. Obviously, there's books that are written, and so just tremendous resources for everyone. Michael, one of the things that we see in our interviews, and I and I'm sure you've seen it in in yours and in your book, you kind of talk about four main reasons that hold people back, and and those are they don't have any experience, they don't have the money to start. They don't know how to get started, and they don't know how to find good deals. So maybe tell us, you know, the story of your first deal or some hurdles and how they were able to just dive in and kind of conquer those fear, those fears. Yeah, I mean, the two main ones are the ones you said is, uh, gosh, I don't have any money, uh, I don't have any experience, and so they kind of sit on the sidelines. But you know, when when I got it, when I kind of stumbled into my twelve unit house flips, should have prepared me for that, and for some reason it didn't. You call the broker and say, I'm the man, I'm the house flipping man. <laughs> and they're like, well, what have, what kind of multifamily have you done, it, done? And you would say, well, none, but look at all the houses I flipped. And they're like, yeah, call me again when you've done a deal, that kind of thing. And that was very surprising to me <laughs> uh, on the one hand. So I thought it would prepare me and it didn't. On the other hand, it's actually fairly easy to overcome your lack of experience. And there's really two ways to do it. One is to educate yourself because there's a certain language you have to use. If you know, one of the fundamental skills is to be able to analyze deals, and we have something called a syndicated deal analyzer that makes it very easy, very precise to do that. So educate yourself. So using the right words, and then building a team is so important, right? Because imagine you're calling up a broker and you're talking about you, and you have nothing, right? Versus talking about talking about your team and the fantastic property manager you have, the real estate attorney, the CPA you have, and your and this advisory board of, of experts you've built around you, and your fantastic website. All of a sudden, you're not talking about yourself. You're talking about your team. And so all of a sudden, you appear much more experienced because you're leveraging off the experience of your of your team. So that's a it's, it's fairly easy to overcome your lack of experience by doing those two things. And on the money raising side, on the lack of money is you really learn the art of raising money. And that was my major aha moment uh, when I didn't have any money and I started raising money for the house flipping side. And I just couldn't believe that someone would want to invest with me for some return. Like I just didn't know that was possible, uh, certainly not to this to the scale. And so the truth is that um, raising money is something that someone can not only learn in a 30, 60, 90 day period, but actually do it. I mean, it's it's relatively easy to raise $100,000 in 90 days coming from from zero. It's you just have to learn the system and then just just do it. So the point is, you don't need five or 10 years of investing experience in a bunch of cash. And those are the two main hurdles that people need to wrap their head around around those. Those, those are normally the ones that keep them from getting started. Yeah, I agree with you. Totally agree with you. And and I think once you get started and once you get that first deal, it increases your confidence levels, right? You feel like, hey, I can do this, right? It may it may take longer the first time, but you know, you often talk about on your podcast that the second deal and the third deal, they always happen faster than the first. And it's kind of a snowball effect. And once it gets started, it kind of keeps rolling from there. Yeah, I, I call that the law of the first deal, which says that if you do a multifamily of any size, you will essentially become financially free in three to five years. Any size, meaning as small as a duplex. I, I didn't used to think that counted for much, but in, in studying others uh, and the progression, a duplex is just as meaningful as a, as a 25 unit is. 
What's what's exciting about it is that the the first deal is almost always the smallest, takes the longest, and is the hardest to do. And then what happens? You mentioned the snowball effect. Then your second deal. Once you close your first one, the second deal comes in rapid, almost automatic succession, as well as the third. It's not uncommon to have that second deal under contract by the time you close the first. And it's really through a variety of reasons that that it ha- that it happens. But the 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 phenomenon is so universal, which is why I called it. And so now we can reduce the complexity of, hey, uh, you need a thousand units or whatever to retire down to, hey, you know what, don't worry about any of that. Just focus on your first deal, whatever that means to you in your in your situation. Yeah, I think it's great advice. And, and I like what you say that the first one's always, this, you know, generally the smallest, hardest to do and, and takes the longest. But once you get past that, it's kind of a, a snowball effect from there. So let's talk about analyzing a deal. If people say, okay, this is what I want to do, right? This is this is what I want to get into. I want to do multifamily. What are they looking for? Are they looking for a cap rate? Are they looking for cash flow? Are they looking for a good? Are they looking for appreciation? I mean, how do they analyze the deal and how do they know it's a good one? So uh, we could probably fill an hour with the answer to that question, Jason. Yeah, I know. Sorry. <laughs> and I could probably use a screen share to show people how to do it, which we don't have here. <laughs> so I'm going to have to wave my hands a little bit here, but – the bottom line is when I first got started and, and I was when I was messing around with apartment building in 2007, it took me four hours to, quote, analyze a deal and get back to the broker with a essentially a counter offer. And I was like, my gosh, I'll never get anywhere with four hours. And I didn't have the techniques we have today nor the tools that we have today. Uh, one of the techniques is called a 10-minute offer. And uh, at, at, the, at the basic level, it uses essentially the broker's marketing package to, uh, to create um, a, a counter offer to the asking price. And it's really predicated on how commercial real estate is valued in general, something through something called a cap rate, capitalization rate or cap rate. And in simple terms, it's a multiplier of income. So commercial real estate is valued as a, at a multiple of income. In other words, two identical boxes side by side. One could be worth a million dollars. The other one next to it could be worth $1.4 million. And the only difference between the two of them is the income they're producing, which is one. Another reason I like commercial real estate or multifamily is I can take an underperforming box on the left make it perform like the one on the right, and now I've, I've inherently, in doing so, raised the value of one. So we take this cap rate, and it's this multiplier of income, and that cap rate you normally get from your broker. Every broker knows the cap rate because that's how they determine their asking price. That's, appraisers also have this. That's how they appraise uh, the, the value of property. So I don't want to get into the mechanics of cap rate. It doesn't matter. It's just multiplier of income. But essentially what you do in a nutshell is you take the, the, the broker's marketing package and you have there's this income and expenses, um, you know, income minus expenses is the net operating income or NOI. Almost always the income is overstated. You know, there's a gross potential rents and then they have 3% vacancy. Well, in, in practice, the vacancy, if you uh, include people not paying the debt or you have some kind of concession or move-in special, so use 10%. Now you adjust the income down. Then the expenses are almost always understated. You know, they're 34% of income. Well, the rule of thumb is that in actuality, it's closer to 50% of income. So you throw away the expenses, you take half of the income, and there's your adjusted net operating income. So now you take your cap rate and you apply it to your adjusted NOI and you get a adjusted fair market valuation. So you're just you're not spending hours on the phone or on the internet researching stuff. You take the broker's marketing package and you call them up 11 minutes later, going, "Hey man, this is great, love this deal, but uh, your income's a little high. Here's why." You know, and the broker will go, "Ah, okay, well, all right, whatever." You know, and your expenses are pretty pretty low. I mean, I haven't gone in there because I could look at a lot of deals, but it's it's pretty low. I mean, the rule of thumb in my experience is 50 percent. 
So I've adjusted the NOI and applied your cap rate to it, and the and the ask and the adjusted fair market value is more like 1.1 million. Uh, is there any flexibility on the sellers, or or probably not? You know, and if the if the broker falls off his chair laughing, or or never recalls you back, then you know you've missed you know you you missed it by a mile, but you only spend 10 minutes you know making that initial offer. So that's essentially is a 10 minute offer nutshell. Now, if you're invited to put something in writing, like a letter of intent, at that point, you need a very strong financial model like the syndicated deal analyzer. And now you can spend your four hours doing some sharpening your pencil and doing some research and and creating a financial model to really get close to what your actual offer price is going to be. But there's no need to do that up front. Michael, say somebody wants to to start a syndication for a, a property they found or or maybe just wants to start a syndication company. Is it is it better to go find the deals first or to go raise the money first? Ha! Chicken head problem. It's not only advise people to to do both at the same time, but on the other hand, you really need to go with number one where your skills are and where the opportunity is. So let's say you're the classic syndicator, you're, you know one of our coaching students or whatever. You're going to raise money while looking for the deal at the same time, simultaneously. In an ideal world, you'll find a deal. And you'll already have, you know, two, you know, several hundred thousand dollars of uh, of money committed from your investors that you've been raising the money for. So it's ideal you put them together. But let's say let's say that you're more successful at finding a deal and you haven't raised the money yet. And you found this this smoking hot 98 unit deal. At that point, uh, what do you do with it? I mean, do you walk away? You got a great deal. You have it under maybe even under LOI or contract. What do you do with it? Well, you don't throw it away. You take it to someone that has the money. So you bring it to someone like us. Uh, we have this deal desk process and we'll raise the money for you or you align yourself with a money raiser. Same thing if you're looking for both and you're, you're a little bit more successful in raising the money, but you're having trouble finding a deal. Well, then take your money to someone with a deal. And essentially, at that point, you act as a money raiser. So it doesn't really matter. It really is is where where the opportunity is, where you're being more successful. That's awesome. Michael, we've got a lot of talk in the media and, and it's, it's kind of, you know, become a commonplace that we've got a little bit of rising interest rates in the market right now. How is that going to impact, impact real estate and, and just syndications and multifamily in general? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly going to impact all of us a, a variety of ways. Uh, number one, so interest rates are, are going up a little bit. And what we're not seeing is we're not seeing cap rates go up yet. And that's because the, the demand for multifamily is so strong, it's outweighing any kind of rise of interest rates. Eventually, cap rates will go up. And as cap rates go up, the uh, the valuation of the prices will go down, which for us is going to be an opportunity. That way, we can actually buy more things. In the meantime, though, what's very important is, you know, making sure that we buy right and we underwrite or, or, or analyze these deals in a conservative way. And as a passive investor, it's very important that you really look at the underwriting of these deals, percent return, double your money in four years. Yeah, but look at how they've underwritten the deal. I mean, they're they're being aggressive. They're leaving things out. They're trying to make the numbers work. So as a, if you're not a, you know, if you're not sophisticated enough, you won't catch these things. Now for us. We're expecting some kind of market adjustment, so we're being ultra conservative in our underwriting. You know, we're assuming the cap rates are going, we're assuming interest rates are going up. You know, we're being conservative in the in the in the rent increases. Uh, we're being conservative with with our use of short term financing. We really want to get into ten year ten year financing that kind that kind of things. So if you go into it with open eyes on both ends, um, it's going to be fine. I, I really like the way multifamily performed in the last recession. The default rate uh, for multifamily was 0.4% versus 4% on residential housing. Rents stayed flat, but they didn't really go down. Vacancy went down by just a smidge. But uh, the way they performed during the Great Recession was was incredible. 
Yeah, it's definitely a great asset class. Michael, what are some of the mistakes that you've made or you would encourage others to avoid making if they want to pursue investing in multifamily? Yeah, I mean, some of the mistakes to avoid making right now are, again, being aggressive on your underwriting, uh, assuming that rents will go up by 5%, you know, make not making sure there's enough cash in the deal because what you don't want, you don't want to run out of cash ever, especially moving into some kind of market correction. I mean, imagine a situation where with 10 units in it, let's say, sewer backs up and affects you know three units. Well, they're going to move out. And if you can't fix it, if you don't have the $25,000 or whatever in reserve to fix it, the other guys are going to move out. And now you're not getting income. And now you're in a downward spiral, right? So don't run out of cash. So we, we when we close, we make sure we have reserves each and every month and put it into a certain escrow account for emergencies. Or, or let's say you know, you know five years go by and you want to sell the asset and you really need to do the redo the parking lot. Well, where is that money going to come from? So if you're not quote saving in five years, you're not going to be able to do the, the do the park. So being conservative, having enough cash in in the bank, uh, those are some of the mistakes. Uh, there's there's many. I could go on. You know, not educating yourself properly. I was talking to a guy just a few weeks ago. He lost twenty three thousand dollars pursuing a multifamily deal, and he started talking about how he was doing, and 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 he ordered a property inspection. At, you know, a day after he got it on a contract, that was six thousand dollars. So he retained the attorney to start drafting the SEC documents. You know, two days after that. And then the deal didn't go anywhere two weeks later. And he had spent like $23,000 already. I'm like, oh, for wow. goodness sakes, we do it a little bit differently. Those are some mistakes that the good news is, though, Jace, is that with, with some amount of education, and there's a lot of quality education out there, we have some, but there's others as well, you're going to avoid some of the, uh, the bigger mistakes. And you're always going to make some mistake, and you're like, ah, I wish I didn't had done that. But it's not gonna it's not gonna kill you, you know. It'll it'll just make you stronger. But a twenty three thousand dollar loss, you know, uh, that you know that guy may or his wife might go, you know what? That was maybe the last time you did that. Maybe you should do something else. And and that's a shame uh, to have to go through that. Yeah. One last question from our listeners: What kind of a return should somebody expect investing in multifamily real estate? That's a great question. So there's different cl- uh, a class class type of multifamily. There's class A, class B, class C. Typically, we're in the C plus B range, right? So class B is, uh, you know, is, is built in the, in the 90s, early 2000s. Class C is built before then. The returns are much higher in class C. So this is working class that's built in the 60s, 70s, 80s or so. And so for that, we're looking really for uh, average annual returns of 15%. And of that, uh, it, uh, we're looking for about a 10% cash on cash return once the asset uh, is stabilized. Now, for nicer property class B, the returns are going to be about 2% lower, so a 13% average annual return. But now we own a, a nicer asset that's more stable and uh, and a little less less risky. That's awesome. Michael, where can people find you or get in touch with you? Yeah, the site, uh, I'm, people can find me at themichaelblank.com. That's T-H-E, Michael Blank is B-L-A-N-K.com. Or you can just Google apartment building investing. Uh, should be on page one of that. And um, I have a bunch of free resources. I have a YouTube channel, a podcast. We have uh, a blog. And then we also have the book, which is called Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing. That's on Amazon. And you know, if you decide that multifamily is right for you, we have online training. We have coaching. We have live events. Keep an open mind. Educate yourself on it. If it's right for you, find someone that you can go deep with and, uh, and learn as much as you can and take action. Thank you. Once again, that's Michael Blank, entrepreneur, investor, and CEO of Nighthawk Equity. He's got a new book, Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing. Thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, Jay, thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. 
For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.